Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this is another installment of our Black History series. And I hope you've listened to the Marcus Garvey episode by now, because in it we talked about the beginnings of the first major black nationalist movement of the 20th century. And now we're going to follow the movement's progress into the 60s and 70s and catch up with the mainstream civil rights movement as well. And fortunately, these really big civil rights philosophies of the era happen to be embodied in one man, and that is Stokely Carmichael. And if you know about Stokely, you probably either think of him as, you know, this fresh-faced, nonviolent Howard student leading sit-ins and voter registration drives, or you think of him as the man who coined the term black power. So two opposite kind of sides of the to, spectrum to here. to reconcile those. It is. Stokely Carmichael has this political evolution, which makes him so interesting. He goes from indifference in high school to being a nonviolent volunteer, risking his life to desegregate the South, to being the honorary prime minister of the Black Panther Party, to being a self-proclaimed revolutionary living out his last 30 years in Guinea, advocating pan-Africanism. So this guy has just done so much and has so many radical changes in his philosophy in his life. So we're going to explain how that happened, but we're going to start at the beginning of his life, as we always do. He was born June 29th, 1941, in Port of Spain, Trinidad. His father was a carpenter and a taxi driver, his mother a stewardess for a steamship line, and they emigrated to the U.S. when he was a toddler, leaving him in Trinidad with his grandmother. He moved to the United States when he was 11 and grew up in a Jewish-Italian neighborhood in the East Bronx. And he's got kind of a rough childhood. He drinks, he gets into petty theft. He says he's the only black member of the Morris Park Dukes, which is a neighborhood gang. Um, but then his life changes when he gets into the Bronx High School of Science, which is a really good school. He quits his gang, and uh, he explains this himself the best. He says, they were all reading the funnies while I was trying to dig Darwin and Marx. I so love that. That's a good quote. So he excels at school. He's really popular, too. He dates his white classmates. And by 1960, he enrolls at Howard after turning down scholarships to white universities. And during this time, students at Southern colleges were starting to stage sit-ins to force the desegregation of lunch counters. It first happened in 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina. And by April 1960, leaders of the sit-in movement organized the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which you probably know as SNCC. And the formerly apathetic Stokely is inspired by all this. He tells Life magazine later in 1967, When I first heard about the Negroes sitting in at lunch counters down south, I thought they were just a bunch of publicity hounds. But one night when I saw those young kids on TV getting back up on the lunch counter stools after being knocked off them, sugar in their eyes, ketchup in their hair, well, something happened to me. Suddenly I was burning. So... This sums up his, his first major philosophical change in life. And he joins the Nonviolent Action Group and Congress of Racial Equality, known as CORE, his freshman year. And CORE, of course, organizes the Freedom Riders, who travel the South desegregating buses. So they'd send a group of white volunteers and black volunteers, and they would subvert the understood 
segregated order of the buses. So the, the white volunteers would go to the back and the black volunteers would go to the front. And um, Stokely participates as a freedom rider in 1961. He's actually arrested and spends 49 days in uh, jail at the Parchman Penitentiary in Mississippi, which is a and particularly have the best reputation. hard sentence, too. But he went on to earn his bachelor's in philosophy with honors in 64 and join SNCC. And then it's Freedom Summer, and SNCC is sending hundreds of black and white volunteers to the South to teach and set up clinics and register people to vote. And Stokely comes out of this as a leader. Not only is he a good speaker, he's generally a really nice guy and a natural-born leader for this kind of thing. He becomes SNCC's field organizer in Lowndes County, Alabama, where he raises the registered voters to 2,600 from 70, which way outnumbers the white registrants. And when existing political parties don't really react with the response he was expecting, you know, take take note that now this county has an overwhelming majority of black voters. And take interest in their issues. And take interest, yeah. He goes ahead and supports the all-black Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And interestingly, there is a law that requires the political parties to have a, a logo. And so this group takes on the Black Panther as their symbol. And later, the Black Panther Party, which we'll talk about eventually, um, acquires this symbol as a tribute to the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. But up until now, Stokely Carmichael and SNCC support nonviolence, which is, you know, the civil rights philosophy best embodied by Dr. King. But Stokely is radicalized by his experiences in the South. He's seen beatings and murders. He's arrested so often he loses count at 32. And he's impatient with how slowly this movement seems to work. He's frustrated with the civil rights movement because it's not tough enough, and yeah. he wants it to be more militant. Yeah, he's feeling increasingly militant. And in 1966, he replaces the integrationist John Lewis as SNCC chairman, who's actually our congressman, Katie. You've met him. I've yeah. met him. I discussed the Braves with him when I was about seven <laughs> or eight years old. Um, so replacing Lewis, that's a big change for SNCC. And about a month after his selection as the new SNCC chairman, he raises the call for black power, which is a term that he coins, in a speech to a crowd of about 3,000 people in Mississippi. And this is right after James Meredith has been shot and wounded on his um, walk against fear from Memphis to Mississippi. And, you know, Meredith is shot, and then um, people come together to walk in his place. So Stokely is been arrested and released, and he makes this speech. And in it, he says, we've been saying freedom for six years. What we are going to start saying now is black power. So you can imagine this has a tremendous effect on the crowd and quickly reverberates throughout the nation. And he's still young then. He's 25. And... There are a lot of people, especially younger black people, who are glad to hear this. It's coming only a year and a half after Malcolm X's assassination, and things are still violent. And black power, as he conceived it, was about self-defense, self-determination, political and economic power, and racial pride. But, of course, black power is really scary to um, not only a lot of white people, but a lot of traditional black civil rights leaders. So there's an immediate white backlash. The um, contributions from white people to civil rights groups fall. Uh, when the November elections come around, the results 
uh, reflect this. And there's a black backlash, too. Martin Luther King says it was an unfortunate choice of words. And the NAACP says it's the raging of race against race. So these are sort of your traditional civil rights stalwarts coming out against this idea. And he tries to explain it in a book he wrote in 1967 with Charles Hamilton later and makes it sound very reasonable. He says it is a call for black people in this country to unite, to recognize their heritage, to build a sense of community. It is a call for black people to define their own goals, to lead their own organizations. So that doesn't sound particularly militant or or frightening. It does sound very reasonable. And it kind of reminds us, again, of Marcus Garvey and his idea of pan-Africanism. But Stokely, yeah, <laughs> things he, change. he starts to... St- He starts to say more provocative stuff as the 60s go on. He travels abroad on what seems like the, like worst choices. (laughs) Um, he goes to North Vietnam, China, and Cuba. Um, and this is in 1968. When he's in Havana, he says, we are preparing groups of urban guerrillas for our defense in the cities. It is going to be a fight to the death. Um, which is a little alienating. Yeah, that's, that's a frightening thing for a lot of people to hear. Consequently, his passport is confiscated when he comes back from this speaking tour, and it's held for 10 months. While all of this is going on, things are changing with SNCC, too, and the really radical members are starting to gravitate toward groups like the Black Panthers. H. Rat Brown became the SNCC chairman in 1967, replacing Stokely, and a year later, he's gone over to the Panthers And a side note, he is now serving a life sentence for murdering a police officer in 2000. And by 1969, SNCC has had to change its name um, because it's increasingly ironic that it's the nonviolent association. They changed it to the Student National Coordinating Committee. Um, But back to the Black Panthers, they had been founded in 1966 in Oakland, California, by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. And originally, their goal was to protect black neighborhoods against police brutality. But by the late 60s, they're a Marxist organization and uh, a popular alternative to nonviolence, to the nonviolent civil rights movement. But you were saying the crazy thing about that is Marxism doesn't really go with this whole idea of, of racial. Yeah, they're they're Marxist and they like the Marxist idea of armed revolution. But in Marxism, racism is counter-revolutionary or at best it's beside the point. It's, it's about economics. But the Black Panthers are obviously <laughs> focused on racial issues as well. Um, they're attractive to a lot of urban African-American youths, um, especially people based in cities. And through the late 60s and early 70s, they have very violent run-ins with the police. They're tremendously out-armed, despite what you may have heard or what their public image is. Yeah, one of the sort of interesting things about researching this episode for me is I got to talk to my dad and my grandfather about this. And my my grandpa actually told me about a raid on the D.C. Panthers headquarters where the police confiscated guns that he described as being more dangerous for the person firing them. So they're they're tremendously out-armed. Their public image is vastly different from um, what they really are. And the police response to the Panthers is sometimes so violent that there's eventually a congressional investigation of police activities. Some people describe this as borderline murder. So, but the Black Panthers 
take on Stokely as their honorary prime minister. And uh, that's okay for a while, but then even the Black Panthers aren't radical enough for Stokely. He falls out with them because they want white support. He doesn't. Uh, so he moves to Africa. He leaves the U.S. in 1969 and moves with his first wife, Miriam Makeba, who is a Grammy-winning South African singer, to Guinea to live by the seaside. He later marries a Guinean doctor, Mary Latou Barry. And he changes his name to Kwame Touré for some early proponents of Pan-Africanism and socialists, too, I believe. Um, he likes to wear a green uniform sometimes and a pistol at his hip. Also reminded me of this um, sort of... Faux military. With Garvey. Garvey, yeah, with his, with his plumes and all that. Um, and he helps establish the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and they're really into Pan-Africanism. He promotes it all around the world and on college campuses and says, Black power can only be realized when there exists a unified socialist Africa. So Stokely spends about 30 years living in Guinea, um, and he dies at 57 of prostate cancer. And he actually once said of his cancer that it was given to me by forces of American imperialism and others who conspired with them. Um, but for this guy who has changed his philosophy so many times and been at the center of so many of the different facets of the civil rights movement and black nationalism, he kind of loses his relevancy at the end of his life. He completely did. And perhaps being part of that nonviolent movement and just becoming so disillusioned by the violence it inspired in other people, he lost his place. Well, and I think that's interesting, too, how um, the major participants in the nonviolent civil rights movement were affected differently by it. And you have someone like this, like you said, the nonviolence driving someone to violence and militancy. And then you have uh, somebody like John Lewis, you know, who sticks to that nonviolent uh, creed. We also talked a lot when we were researching this about the different SNCC chairmen and how interesting that was to us how different they all were, like John Lewis, who he mentioned, but also you've got Marion Barry. He's the first SNCC chairman. And he got in trouble as DC mayor for some very unsavory activities. And someone like, you know, Stokely moving to Guinea and embracing Pan-Africanism. And then somebody like H. Rat Brown, who's in prison, is in prison. So it's, I I think it's so interesting that... um, one organization there can produce such different people from its leaders. So I think that wraps up Stokely Carmichael, but if you'd like to learn more about the evolution of the civil rights movement, come and search for it on our website at www.howstuffworks.com. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we'd love to have you. We're at Mist in History. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 